So some of you are well aware of this, but I want to say it again this morning in case you've missed it or you're not or you're still trying to figure out uh, what it is. Um, There is something special happening around Valley. There's something special happening in who we are and in what we're doing, in the ways in which we are trying to do things. There is something beautiful happening among us. I talk to people about this actually pretty frequently, sharing with them what's going on and that these incredible things are happening. When I talk to people who are outside a valley, they often ask me to tell them more about what I mean, what's happening, what's going on. And I have to be honest with you, I struggle to find words to clearly illustrate, illustrate or describe what I feel like is happening Among our family. I struggle to find the words to describe what makes Valley so special. I can't find the right language to communicate that I think that there is something mysteriously beautiful that happens each and every time we gather for worship on Sunday. I don't don't know what it is. I think Wendy does a great job, but does that mean we have the best music in town? Probably not. Do we have the best preaching in town? Definitely not. Um, what, what is it that I don't, I don't fully understand, but I believe that there's something special that happens when we come and we worship together. I struggle with the words to describe what's happening with us as our family, as our body learns to be in relationship with one another, as we learn to take care of one another, as we get better and better at doing this thing that we call family. I can't put words on what's happening or how it's happening. As they ask me to tell more, I, I, I know there's something special about worship, but I can't figure out what it is. I know there's something special about the way we're interacting, but I can't figure out how to define it. I struggle with this idea of explaining this spiritual growth that I feel like is taking place in the lives of our people. This, this discovery of healing that seems new for so many, a wholeness that people are living with that perhaps wasn't there in the past. I struggle and trip around the words looking for explaining how incredible a time it is to be a part of Valley. But I believe with all of my heart that it is true. When I talk to some of you about that, and we begin to have conversations about what, what is it that's happening, about what is it that brings you here, that keeps you here, that makes you come and be a part of what's happening and how do we describe it and how do we get there. There is a word that frequently comes up. Frequently, I hear some of you tell me that the thing I'm trying to describe is authenticity. And I'll be honest, if I heard that word one time, I would push it away and say, yep, nope, that's not, that's not the word that we're looking for. Because the word authenticity has become really popular in the lives of lots of churches. Lots and lots of churches want to use the word authentic to describe who they are and what they're doing. And often when they use it, they use the word authentic In order to say that they don't look like the models of church that thrived in what we would call the church growth era. So the time of the church that lasted from, I don't know, the 70s or 80s to maybe the late 90s. And they use that to differentiate how they're differently. And it seems to me the word has been thrown around so flippantly 
that it doesn't actually have any meaning anymore. It's just this word that people say. But I keep hearing it over and over again from many of you. From many of you who don't know that that is a popular word that churches want to use to differentiate themselves from other churches. For many of you who aren't using it as a way to contrast who we are from something else, from something that you don't want to be or something that you've seen that you don't want to be a part of. And it keeps coming up over and over again. And many of you keep telling me that Valley is special because of our authenticity. As our vision team started meeting together and trying to discern these guiding principles. These things that we believe we would be motivated by. These stakes in the ground that would keep us on the road of moving forward in the direction that we're called to go. Our, our goal, our intent, as we came together with a desire to listen to the Holy Spirit. We wanted the Holy Spirit to clearly begin to speak what these things things might be. But alongside that was the goal that we be describing things that are already true of us. Not dreaming up things that we wish were true. That we look to things that we believe were already happening in the life of Valley and that we proclaim those. That we take hold of those, that we affirm them, that we shout it from the rooftops. This is a thing that is us, and we're naming it because we never want to lose it. We want to declare this is a part of who we are. So, so the goal was, like I said, not to come up with these things that we wished we were. Hey, we wish we did this really well, so we'll call it a core value and hope that eventually it will wear off on people and they'll buy in. If they hear it enough times that it will become a part of who we are. That's not really the way that these guiding principles work or that we set out to try and move towards them. And as we talked about these things, and we're walking through a list of several of them, but as we talked about them, again, the word authentic came up. So I looked at Harold and Susan Tinsley, who were part of our vision team, and Beth and Tom Sales, who were part of our vision team, and Callie, and I said, I keep hearing people say this word authentic, but I'm not sure I actually know what it means when you say it. What do you mean when you say that valley is a place of authenticity? Why in the world would we want this to be a core value that we have? What, what is it that you're trying to communicate? And these were some of the responses that I heard from just this handful of people as we were gathered together. We meet once a month. We've been praying through this. We talk about a ton of other things. But this has been a, a, an intentional focus of us for the last several months. And these were some of the responses that I heard. Being who God has made us to be. Not comparing ourselves to others. Coming to Jesus Bear. Having no pretense. Now, some of you, perhaps like me, aren't smart enough to know what this woman meant when she said no pretense. I had to look up the word because I wasn't exactly sure how to understand it or what it looked like. So in looking it up, this is what the dictionary says of the word pretense. An attempt to make something that is not the case appear true. So what she was saying about Valley is that we are authentic when we don't do this, when we don't try to make things appear true that aren't, when we don't try to fake it, when we have no pretense among us. And as I read the definition, I thought, wow, I really like that. And I wish I were smart enough to use words like that. 
Another response that I heard, being who you're made to be, both individually and corporately. Over and over again, you keep telling me that something you love about Valley is our authenticity. So this morning, I want to do something that's, that's really difficult for me. Thankfully, this morning, it's not quite as hard as it has been because I've spent a long time trying to work on this. I want to try and expound on what our vision team is saying to you. And I want to try and see if I can clarify what I think it is that you're saying when you tell me that authenticity is a part of what you see in us. I want to see if I can try and, and, and explain and summarize the point that we're trying to get to and what it is that so many of you have been saying. And also why I feel that what you're saying is a valuable part of who we are. And a beautiful description of what it means for us to be women and men of God. What it means for us to be the church that represents Christ and the kingdom of God. I have this very clear memory uh, of being in high school. I was leading a Bible study uh, as a high school student, and it was other students that were in the room. And I'm not sure why this moment stands out. Um, there were lots of different Bible studies that I led at different times, but but this one just is it's clear and it's vivid. I I remember the room that I was sitting in. I remember the maroon carpets. I remember the cream colored walls. I remember the faces of many who sat in the room with me as we sat in a circle and we walked through this Bible study on the book of Romans. It stands out so clearly. And and not even the entire Bible study, but it's this one night that we were gathered together. I remember there were kids in a gym that wasn't far behind us who were playing. I remember roller skates coming in and out. All of those things are incredibly vivid in my mind. And one of the things that I most clearly remember is coming to the end of Romans chapter seven. I I actually remember that when I read it then, I was reading through an NIV version of the scriptures. So the translation was NIV, and I think the NIV, even more so than what we read today, reads almost like you're reading a Dr. Seuss book. The ways in which it's kind of this tongue twister of, I know what I want to do, but I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. And the NIV does a much better job of making a tongue twister out of it. The New Living has made it easier for us to actually understand. But I, I remember that tongue twister, and I remember getting caught up in it, and I remember that as I worked my way through Paul's winding words, that the more and more I read of that passage, the more and more I felt like I could relate to what was going on in it. The more and more I could connect to what I believed that Paul was saying in ways that, that, that I probably hadn't connected with any passage of Scripture before that one. This one seemed to be speaking exactly what I experienced and exactly what I felt. Because I knew that I did things that I knew I didn't want to do. And that no matter how hard I tried, I kept tripping over myself in attempts to do what I believed was godly. Since childhood, I had called myself a Christian. I'd been trying to walk with Jesus. But I knew what it was like to do things that I knew weren't right. But to still choose wrong. And over and over again, it felt like I couldn't get it right. And I wish that as I said that, I was only talking about what it was like to be a high school student trying to follow Jesus. But I still feel like this is true 
so frequently that this struggle is still real in my journey with Jesus. Now, there's a theological debate that's out there, and different commentators, depending on who you read, will argue from different standpoints. But some wonder if this was actually written before Paul chose to become a Christ follower, if this was just before and Romans 8 was just after he decided to walk with Jesus. Some argue, no, that's not possible. There's no way. This is definitely a part of his faith journey. And let me be 100% honest with you. I don't have a clue when Paul wrote this because I wasn't there. So I don't have any idea if Paul wrote this before he was walking with Jesus or after he was walking with Jesus. But I can say this without a shadow of a doubt. What Paul wrote in the end of Romans 7 sure feels like my journey to try and follow Jesus today. This still feels true to me. I still struggle to choose right instead of wrong. I'm amazed at how often I choose my way over God's ways. I'm baffled by this constant preference that I have to choose sin instead of choosing God's will and God's ways. Even when I know it, even when I want to do what I know is right, I keep making a mess out of it. So I don't know about Paul, but this describes my experience following Jesus. And perhaps you feel the same way. Maybe you can relate To what it means to struggle between this idea of right and wrong and following God's will versus following your own will and God's ways versus your own ways. I feel like as we find ourselves in this battle, in this kind of wrestling match between what's good and what's bad, what's God's will and what's our will, um, that there are two common struggles, or, or sorry, two common responses to the struggle. That as we battle with this, that there are these common responses that come out, other than just continuing to try and wrestle with it. I'm going to leave that one on the side right now. But these other two that often happen, the first is that many of us quit. We look at this idea of what it means to follow after God, and we ultimately decide that it's insurmountable, that it's unrealistic, or maybe just that it's unnecessary. So it's not worth continuing to do this. So we decide to stop giving any real effort to following after God's ways, to paying attention to the law. A second option that I think is true is that many of us have a tendency to respond to this struggle by hiding the bad decisions that we make. Hiding the sins that we commit. The times that we decide to do something other than what is the will of God. We just pretend they don't exist. We put on a a mask of some sort and try to look like something that isn't real. We become hypocrites. Claiming a life that is inconsistent with the reality of what we know and what we're living. And I believe that both of these are damaging and inauthentic responses to this struggle to follow after the call of God in our life. The first way, the way of quitting, says God's ways don't matter enough that I'm interested in following them. And the second says, I can't do it, so I'll just make it look like I figured it out. I'll just pretend that I got all of this worked out. I think in the Romans 7 discourse, this conversation, this kind of tongue twister that Paul does, I think that Paul gives us a different picture of how we can wrestle with this struggle. I think that Paul, that Paul models for us a way that we can reject both of those typical responses and a way that we can choose something better. 
I think that Paul shows us the way towards authenticity. And as I read about Paul's journey and I think about what it means for us to be authentic and what I think it is that we're pursuing and that you are declaring over and over again, it seems to me that there are two elements of what it means for us to grab hold of authenticity. And I think the first is this. I think the first is believing that deep inside of us is what some would call a true self. The idea that at our core, God created us good. The scriptures say that we were created in the image of God. And this wrestling with a true self and what it means means that there is inside of us something good and something beautiful, something ideal, something with purpose and intention. In Psalm 139, it tells us, and it's all over the scriptures, but in Psalm 139 is a beautiful picture where it says that we are wonderfully made, that we're deeply loved by the creator. It reminds us that we were created with beauty and intention, that God has incredible purposes for our life. Let me read to you just a portion of it. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of the womb, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I think that this true self is what you and I were created to be from the very beginning. It's what God dreamed that we would be. It's what God hoped that we would be. And it is this person, whole and healthy, that God is calling us back to becoming. I think that God created us to live out the dreams that God has for us. And because of that, we've been given gifts and passions and abilities so that we can be a blessing to God's creation and to the kingdom of God. God sees us as precious. Even though sin inside of us, and we know that it's strong, and we know that it's powerful, even though sin inside of us pushes us to be something other than what God desires, pushes us to another place, God is calling us back to this idea of becoming our true self, of living in the image of God, of what Paul calls becoming the image of Christ. Are you recognizing overlaps from last week as we talked about spiritual transformation? You should. Because these things weave in and out of one another. They are intimately connected. So if this is true, if if we believe that inside of us is a true self, is something good, and we were created in the image of God, then what is it that Paul is writing about? And why in the world is it so easy for us to relate to this battle inside? This pull between following the will of God and following our own way. This pull between uh, glorifying God and sin. This, this, this battle between doing what is good and doing what is evil. Why is it that we choose to quit so often? 
Why is it that we choose to wear a mask? And I think this is where we see in Paul his pushing us towards what I think is the second element of us living into this idea of authenticity. Here's number two, that we are not fully living out our true self. That's not who we are today. That's not what we're living today. That's not the, the person that most of us find ourselves as. I think that Paul was confessing. Confessing that he wasn't living up to his calling, that he wasn't fulfilling God's dreams for his life, that he wasn't even fulfilling his own desires for who he believed that he could be, that he was called to be, that he was created to be. In the talk of true self, and I know that even using that language for some of you is like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I think about that word. That's okay. I'm not sure how to figure out a better word for that yet. Other than image of God. Icon is the Hebrew word. Our egos, our selfish desires, our sin, temptations of the enemy constantly get in the way of us becoming our true self, becoming the image of God that we were created to be. We are drawn over and over again towards becoming something less than we were created to be. And it's honestly a bit baffling. It is baffling that we're so attracted to something less than God's ways. It's baffling that we would come and we would celebrate how great God is and then that we would walk out the door and say, but I know what's better for Chad than God does. I know what's better for the world than God does. I have this figured out and God doesn't quite understand what it means to be me or to walk in my ways. It is baffling how often we decide that my ways are better than God's ways. And yet over and over again, I choose Chad over God. It's hard for us to believe that God actually wants things that are good for us. It's hard for us to actually believe that God's ways are the best possible ways for us and all of God's creation. And I don't care how many songs we sing that proclaim we believe it. Most of us fail to live in a way that we say that we actually believe that it's true. So Paul points us towards what I feel like is the answer to this battle, this struggle, this difficulty figuring out who we're supposed to be and where we're supposed to go. This difficulty with with being honest about who we are and where we are with this this struggle that's going on inside of us. In verse 25 of chapter 7, Paul said, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is in my mind. I really want to obey God's laws. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Now, I don't personally, and there are some that would argue this, I don't personally feel like what Paul is trying to do here is blame it all on this this unquenchable reality of sin that's inside of us. That's actually why some theologians want to argue that this is pre-conversion. Because in verse 8, he begins to talk about sin's been overthrown, Christ has overthrown that, that's no longer alive and present in me. So personally, I don't think that he's blaming it on that, but he's instead saying, these two things are at war within me. God's will and what is good and right, and sin and what isn't, and I keep being torn between the two. And I want to go this way, but instead I go that way. It's this battle that exists inside of us. And he says in the end that the strength to be honest about where we are today 
and to move towards who we have been called to be, who we were created to be, comes only through the grace and the love and the power of Jesus. We talk a lot about what it means for us to live out faith, what it means for us to follow in the ways of God, and that is so very valuable for us to grasp and understand. But oddly, this also sits beside it, and we have to always come back to this place of understanding we cannot do enough to become the truest version of who we were created to be. We can't do enough. We cannot accomplish the work. It doesn't matter how hard you and I strive, we find ourselves back at the battle that Paul was in. I want to do this, but instead I choose that. I know this is right, but I go that way. Instead, I don't want to do this. And yet over and over again, I find myself here. Instead, the call of Christ on us is that you and I would be... That we would stop striving so hard to do and accomplish it. And instead that we would be, that we would be in Christ's presence. Often. Intimately. That we would be in surrender to Jesus' work in us. To the ways in which he desires to work. That we would be attentive to the power of the Holy Spirit. And the ways in which the Holy Spirit is stirring and moving and calling us forward. That instead of striving to do so much. That we would be honest about where we are. That we would be willing to be transformed into who God has always known we were. And that we would be willing to be transformed into who God has created us to be. Now, again, that doesn't remove us from practices or activities or responsibilities. Sometimes we get these things back out of order and we strive so hard to do things so that we can become who we were called to be. And I think the reality is that we are called to become out of the presence of Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. And that through that we start to do the things that we've been called to do. And yet we need help getting there, don't we? So for many, and and in some ways this is a side note, but it's a really, really important side note, is you work to be honest about your journey and where you are and the battles between what God wants for you and what, what you want for you and your own struggles in this. There are things that begin to come up that you begin to dig up. There are difficult realities of your own wants and ego and selfish desires, of struggles in relationships and with family. And it is quite possible that the only way that you can walk through that and deal with that is that you find a professionally trained counselor who can help you wrestle with those realities. I know that in some of our faith worlds, we have pushed counseling out as some kind of taboo, but I want you to hear very clearly this morning. I wholeheartedly disagree with all of that. For the third time in my life, I am actively seeing a counselor. I've been doing that for a year and a half here, and I have no interest in giving it up anytime soon. We've moved in seasons where we meet a lot and seasons where we meet rarely, and that's okay. But I am continuing to become healthier and more and more of who God has called me to be because I am able to sit with Matt and talk about some of the the things that happen in my life. We need that. Perhaps you need that. And if that's the case, we would love to help you find a place that you can spend time with a counselor who can help you walk towards becoming all God has called you to be and created you to be. But even more than that, 
And in no way am I trying to devalue that. I'm saying that's incredibly important. But I think the scriptures tell us that in order for us to do this, in order for us to live lives of authentic faith as individuals, we need the church. We need the body of Christ in order to figure out how to do this. We need the church to create an environment in where this kind of living is normal. Because it's not normal anywhere else. So we need the church to create an environment where this kind of living is considered normal and appropriate and even ideal. And we need a church who's willing to model this. Who's willing to model what it means for us to be honest about where we are and committed to where we believe we've been called to go. And I actually think that this is what so many of you are celebrating about Valley. That we are right now a church who's striving really hard to be honest about where we are and who we are as a body. That we're doing everything we can to push away any falsifications that we have it all together. We, we, don't, we don't have all the answers. I especially don't. I do not have all the answers. We don't do all of this perfectly. We bring what we have We lay it before Jesus and the church, and then we ask God to make much of it. It it actually reminds me, it made me think of my grandmother as I was thinking through this idea of authenticity. As I've been thinking about this idea of us being honest and bringing things um, to God, it made me think of my grandmother. My grandmother who, who loved to prepare meals for all of us. Whether there were one or two at her house, it was a huge feast. When we were all gathered together this past Christmas, she's already passed away, but this past Christmas when we gathered together, there were like 35 of us. And it it happened in the exact same way that it always did when my grandmother was there, except that the food wasn't quite as good. But it happened in exactly the same kind of way. And it made me think of her and this spirit that exists within our family when we gather for a huge family gathering. You know that when company sometimes comes to your house, I do this at our house, you dig out all the best stuff. You try and find the best serving platters that you have. You pull out the finest of your silver. You get the fancy china. And you're ready to make sure that everything is decked out and well done. But with my grandmother, when family gathered together, there was no need for the fanciest of stuff. There was no need for that to be pulled out because family was gathered together and no one was going to pay attention or even notice. So the biscuits were still in the pan that they were cooked in and laid on the counter for you to take whatever you wanted. The mashed potatoes still in the pot that they were mashed in and cooked in, just plopped out there and ready to go. The fruit salad in a 20-year-old Tupperware container that had come every year to every possible event. And everyone knew whose it was. It didn't need a name on it. This is what the fruit salad comes in every single time. And no one asked a question. And no one was concerned. And no one was offended because this was family gathered together. And when family came together, we could show our true selves. There was nothing fancy required. There was nothing that you had to do to dress it up. Nothing, no one had to look more important than it was. Now, for those of you who love fine china, I'm not criticizing fine china. I'm saying be who you are. My grandmother was not fine china, although there's a huge cabinet full of it. I've never seen anyone actually eat on any of it. And we knew that when this happened, that when we were... At Meemaw and Dubs, that we were home. 
because everything was a completely true version of itself. Nothing was made to look more spectacular. This is who we want to be as Valley. This is something that we want to be true of who we are as a church. As we gather together as the family of Christ, we want to be a people committed to no pretense. Honest about our sins and our failings and our shortcomings. Honest with our feelings and our desires. Real about where we are today as individuals, as a body, as people. And yet always committed to more. Because we believe that we were created with purpose and intentionality. We believe that God has big dreams for each of us and all of us. That God has incredible dreams for Chad and for John, for Bobby, for Allie, for Sarah, for Alex, for Jackson, for Valley. We want to be a people of authenticity in that we are people that recognize that we still need spiritual transformation to take place in us. And that we're committed to the work of spiritual transformation, not not through our work, but through the work that the Holy Spirit is striving to do in us and through us. We want to fully and completely be the valley that God has created us to be. And we don't have to attempt or pretend to be any other church in order for that to be true. We want to fully and completely be the women and the men of God that we were created to be. And we don't have to pretend to be anything or anyone else in order for that to be true. Instead, we want to be true to ourselves. True to our God, true to one another. We want to be a people of authenticity. Pray with me, would you? Jesus, you have made us beautiful. When we believe it and when we don't. When we recognize it and when we don't, you have made your children beautiful. Every man, woman, and child. And God, I ask that you would restore our distorted views of ourselves. That you would give us the strength to be honest about where we are about our struggles and our issues, about our battles with sin, about our our choices to choose our own egos over what you desire for us. But then may we have the courage to stretch beyond that honesty about where we are and to be committed to becoming who you want to make us into. Transform us. into the people, into the church that you knew we could be when you created us. Help us discover the truest version of who we are, which is people living 
precisely the way that you have called us to live. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.